Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is session one of Greatest Stories Under Told, a new weekly podcast series. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. This first installment is entitled Balaam and the Talking Donkey. All scripture is taken from the New International Version. So come with me now to about 1400 BC, and the children of Israel have almost finished the 40 years that they spent wandering in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land of Canaan after the Lord miraculously delivered them from bondage there, and they were under the leadership of Moses. We're in Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. Then the Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across from Jericho. So they are going to enter the land of Canaan from the east side, and they are currently in the land of Abraham's nephew Lot's descendants, the people of Moab. Moab and Ammon, there on the east side of Israel, were the descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters, and they were enemies of the people of God. Verse 2, Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, That was earlier, and Moab was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. Then Moab said to the elders of Midian, now the Midianites were quite a ways south from the Moabites, but they too were descendants of Abraham. You might recall that after Abraham's beloved wife Sarah died, he married another woman whose name was Keturah, and in his very old age, He had six more sons, and boy number four of Keturah was Midian, and his descendants became a nation of people. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, this horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon, and here we go, we've come to the main character of our story, Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor near the river in his native land. Uh, In 1967, in the nation of Jordan, the supposed biblical Pethor was discovered. It is the archaeological dig site Deir Allah, that's pronounced Deir, I guess, but it's spelled D-E-I-R, and then the second word is A-L-L-A, and a building was uncovered there that actually had an inscription that mentioned this Baal son of Beor, who was a prophet or a seer, S-E-E-R. Bullock said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the country. For I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. So this is a very curious thing. Here we have a prophet of God who is renowned in the extended region 
and who apparently really does have power with the words that he speaks to bring blessing or cursing on people. And it was important enough to the king of Moab to go and summon this man, Balaam, so that he might do some damage to this group of Israelites that so threatened the Moabites. We're in verse 7 now. The elders of Moab and Midian left, taking with them the fee for divination. When they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will bring you back the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite princes stayed with him. So you see how confident he is. This would almost remind me of something you would read in the book of Daniel, where Daniel needs a word from the Lord, and he says, give me time. And yet this man was a Gentile prophet. Verse 9, God came to Balaam and asked, who are these men with you? So sure enough, in the middle of the night, God really does approach Balaam. And he asks him a question, not because God doesn't know and he needs some information and so he's consulting with someone who's knowledgeable, but it's more of a rhetorical question. Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. Perhaps then I will be able to fight them and drive them away. In a sense, then, his answer to the question, who are these men with you, is these are people who want to curse the Israelites. So now we're in verse 12. But God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. So now he has a word from the Lord, and it could not be more crystal clear. He has two instructions. Don't go with them, and don't curse the Israelites. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's princes, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite princes returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. And then Balak sent other princes, more numerous and more distinguished than the first. You know, sometimes temptation won't take no for an answer. And so when someone is faced with a dilemma in which they feel drawn to do something wrong, they just simply say no and they think it's over and that's going to be the end of it. But then that temptation comes up and taps them on the shoulder again and says, hey, come here. I really do want you to do this. Verse 16, they came to Balaam and said, this is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Don't let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. So they've really turned the heat up with this temptation, haven't they? I will reward you handsomely. I mean, it's one thing if you get a $50,000 reward for putting a curse on a group of people. But it's another thing entirely if you're offered millions, isn't it? And it's one thing if a king pays you some respect, but it's another thing if a really powerful man like a king says, I'll do whatever you say. Think of the power and the wealth that is being offered to him. Come and put a curse on these people for me. 
But Balaam answered them, Even if Balak gave me his palace filled with silver and gold, I couldn't do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. Okay, that sounds like he's holding firm and resisting the temptation. But then we get to verse 19, and he says, Now, stay here tonight, as the others did, and I will find out what else the Lord will tell me. So he's hedging a little bit. He's hoping for a different answer. Yes, God was crystal clear. Yes, God very much let it be known that he was not to go with them and he was not to curse the Israelites. But who knows? It's possible he could change his mind, right? So in verse 20, that night God came to Balaam and said, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. So God sees that this temptation is working on Balaam and that Balaam is drawn and that Balaam is thinking about this and God is going to allow him to go with them even though he already told him not to do it. So verse 21, Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God was very angry when he went it's easy to question this verse and think, well, that's strange and unfair and unexplainable because God already said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them. But God is able to look inside Balaam's heart and he sees that he is being drawn by this temptation and the greed and the desire for the power and the wealth that he could have is starting to take hold of his heart. And the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Imagine being on such a wrong path that the angel of the Lord is directly opposed to you. Balaam was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, she turned off the road into a field. Now track with me here. This man is a prophet. He is sought after because he sees things that other people don't. In fact, the other name for prophet is seer. This man has insight. He knows about things in the spiritual world. But because this temptation has got a hold of his heart and he's so interested in the wealth that he could obtain if he were to curse these people... He's kind of gone blind, but his donkey is able to see into the spirit world and she sees the angel of the Lord standing in the road. And this angel is menacing. He's got a sword. And so she's going to try to save herself and her rider and she turns off the road. Balaam beat her to get her back on the road. Now, I don't know about you. But any time I hear about any animal being abused, it makes me feel physically sick. So it's very sad and hurtful to imagine him getting furious with his animal and taking some big stick and just wailing on that poor donkey. Verse 24, Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between two vineyards with walls on both sides. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord... Are you tracking with me here? The donkey sees it again, and he's still unaware. 
He is so blind by his temptation that he can't detect things that a dumb animal can see. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against it. So he beat her again. His anger's really flaring now. And he is raining down blows on this poor donkey. I don't know if she's flinching or if she's crying out. Verse 26, Then the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, so here we are on time number three, the donkey has the insights that the seer lacks because he has allowed himself to be taken over by greed from this temptation. She lay down under Balaam and he was angry and beat her with his staff. And then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth And she said to Balaam, what have I done to make you beat me these three times? Yes, the Bible actually records that a donkey spoke to a man. Balaam answered the donkey. And isn't it interesting that he doesn't seem surprised that the donkey can talk? He just takes it for granted and enters into the conversation. Verse 29, you've made a fool of me. How ironic. He's making a fool of himself. He has allowed himself to become so blind that he's on the wrong road. And yet he says, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. He doesn't even realize that the donkey is keeping him from being killed by the sword of the angel. Verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your own donkey, which you've always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, he said. So now the donkey is reasoning with him. He's the irrational one who's taken over with rage. And she is the one who is not only spiritually insightful, but calm and rational and reasoning. Doesn't God have a way of bringing people to a place of humility and repentance? And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes finally. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I've come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Let me ask you now. Is God opposing you because your path is a reckless one before him? Wake up. Open your eyes before it's too late. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she hadn't turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now, but I would have spared her. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. You know why he didn't realize that? Because he was blinded spiritually by allowing this temptation to take hold in his heart and greed to overcome him. Now, if you're displeased, I'll go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. 
Balak said to Balaam, Didn't I send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Well, I've come to you now, Balaam replied. But can I say just anything? I must speak only what God puts in my mouth. And then Balaam went with Balak. Well, that brings us to the 23rd chapter, but I'm just going to summarize it. In the 23rd chapter, Balaam and Balak set up seven altars and animal sacrifices on each one, and they began burning the sacrifices to the Lord. And Balaam waits to hear from the Spirit of the Lord to speak to his heart, and he works himself up into a trance, and finally a message from the Lord comes, and he's hoping that he can pronounce this curse. And by the way, they're up on a very high point, so they're looking down over the nation of Israel, and they see all of these people like ants, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. But instead, a blessing comes out of his mouth. Well, that angers and upsets the king of Moab, but they go to another vantage point and set up seven other altars and offer animal sacrifices and try it again. And the same thing happens two more times. And it's so interesting in Numbers 24, verses 3 and 4, and also 15 and 16, as he gets ready to pronounce God's words, which actually turn out to be blessings on the people of Israel, he says, The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly. Isn't that amazing when he couldn't even see the angel of the Lord? The prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. And yet he was so very blinded by his own temptation. Bottom line, though, He never was able to pronounce a curse. And the king of Moab, in his anger, basically says to him, you sure missed the boat. You would have been a very rich man. Thanks for nothing. So then we get to Numbers 25, and there's an interesting turn of events that happens to Israel, and no mention is made at this point of Balaam, but more is to come. So in verse 1 of Numbers 25, while Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. Isn't that curious? That you would have these two enemy nations, and Moab gets ready to offer sacrifices to their false gods, and a whole bunch of their women, I mean by the thousands go over and try to entice the men to enter this false worship with them and to engage in adulterous affairs. The people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods, it says in verse 2. Then we go on, So Israel yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burns against them. And you read on down a little further, And the Lord struck them with a plague in his anger, and 24,000 people died. In fact, it also says that in order to stop the plague, a priest was going to go out, and Moses was speaking to the people about getting this stopped. And another man in broad daylight brings 
one of these Moabite princesses into his tent in order to have sex with her. And a priest of the Lord, whose name was Phinehas, goes in and runs a javelin through the man's body and into the woman's body and kills them both. And then the fierce anger of the Lord at this enormous breach of his explicit commandment is assuaged and the plague relents. Then you go six chapters forward in the book of Numbers to chapter 31, and we find out something very interesting, starting in verse 7. They, and that means the Israelites, fought against Midian, as the Lord commanded Moses, and killed every man. And then you go on a little bit further down. It says they also killed Balaam, son of Beor, with the sword. Moses was very angry with the officers of the army who returned from the battle Verse 15, have you allowed all the women of Midian to live, he asked them? They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice. Oh, okay. Who followed Balaam's advice and were the means of turning the Israelites away from the Lord and what happened at Peor so that a plague struck the Lord's people. So Balaam was not able to pronounce an outright curse on the people, but he was so hungry for the wealth that he could obtain if he were to be rewarded by the king of Moab that he decided to find another way to get at the Israelites. And so he advised them to offer sacrifices to their gods and send the women over to seduce the Israelite men and... Sure enough, it did result in the death of 24,000 Israelites. He was exactly right. Sadly, though, he died the very same year that this all happened. What I just read uh, in verse 7, they killed Balaam, son of Beor, with a sword. And so he never got anything. He never was able to enjoy anything from uh, his opposition to the Lord. So what is this strange story about a talking donkey and a man who wanted to curse the Israelites really telling us today? How could it possibly be relevant in 2020? Well, the first thing that it tells us is that temptation really blinds people. You know, the donkey was seeing 2020, but the seer, the prophet, was blind as a bat. All the time Balaam was wishing to kill his donkey with the sword, her actions were keeping him from being killed by the sword of the Lord. Remember what King Balak had said, don't let anything keep you from coming to me because I will reward you handsomely and do whatever you say. That blinded Balaam. The same thing happened to Eve in the story of the first temptation in Genesis 3, the serpent said to Eve, after she told him that they were instructed not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what's happening here? Just like King Balak ramped up the temptation when Balaam first refused, Satan ramped up the temptation when Eve first said, Oh no, we are not to eat of any of the trees except 
when Eve said, we are allowed to eat of any of the trees except this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Peter said in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2.15, speaking of people who had gone astray, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor. So he's thinking back to his early Bible lessons, and he knew about the passage of scripture in Numbers 22 and 23 also. He says that Balaam, son of Beor, loved the wages of wickedness. In Revelation 2, 14, when Jesus is addressing the seven churches, he comes to church number three, the church at Pergamum, and he writes to that church, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, wait a minute. Balaam, he lived back in Old Testament times. He lived back in 3,600 years ago. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. And so things don't change that much. So, yes, temptation blinds, but God's word enlightens. That's the second point that we can gain from this. God kept very clearly letting Balaam know that he was on the wrong road. And we read in Psalm 119, verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In verse 18 of the same chapter, it says, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. And then in verse 105 of that very long chapter, your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. And so, yes, temptation can certainly blind, but if you counter that with the light of God's word, there is an escape. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In other words, you can count on it. Some people really are going to fall for that. They're going to go blind when they're tempted. Paul also said in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. Why? Because God's word enlightens. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 6. That's part of his Sermon on the Mount, verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. And it seems to me that the paraphrase in the message brings this out so very clearly. So Matthew 6, 22 and 23, again in the message, your eyes are windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, 
what a dark life you will have. In other words, if you really refuse to see, if you allow yourself to be blinded, if you shut your eyes to the truth of God's word, like when Balaam shut his eyes to the truth where God said, you are opposed to me and do not curse these people. And he just kept trying to somehow do something to detract from the Israelites so that he could be financially rewarded. Then what a dark life he had. What a short dark life he had. And so temptation blinds and God's word enlightens. And the third point is that we can use the light to avoid stumbling. I remember when it's recorded in uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 4 that Jesus was tempted by Satan after 40 days in the wilderness of fasting. Satan said to Jesus, all this will I give you, after he took him up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the world, if you will bow down and worship me. How did Jesus respond to that temptation when he was so weakened and when he was allowed a shortcut, he was shown a shortcut to the kingdoms of the world that he was trying to win? He quoted Deuteronomy 6.13. He said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And so, because he was able to wield this wonderful light that was lighting up his path, he avoided the temptation. The medieval church listed seven deadly sins, and they're things that still plague us all today. Lust and gluttony and greed and laziness and wrath and envy and pride. What seduces you? Is it praise at work or credit for something you didn't really do? Is it some sort of sexual hang-up or illicit relationship and you find that you just can't seem to say no? Or are you just really turned on by this world's possessions so that you find yourself pursuing things, things, and more things? Maybe you're seduced by the juicy story about a neighbor or someone in the church or a family member or even some star in Hollywood. You know it's wrong to listen to all that junk, but it's just so very entertaining. Maybe for you, it's nothing more than idle time. You know you should be doing something productive, but laziness has seduced you. Could you use the light of God's word to avoid stumbling? Paul said in Ephesians 5.8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So the bottom line of this strange and intriguing story in Numbers 22 and 23, and then in chapter 31, about a talking donkey and a blind prophet, is that we need to be on guard that temptation does not blind us to. Dear Lord, open my spiritual eyes. If this has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 